Hello, friends. Um, today's message is not being delivered at out at St. Mark's in Mineral Wells, Texas, or for that fact at any other church. I'm technically on vacation overlooking beautiful Table Rock Lake. It's a beautiful red sky sunset evening here. But I did want to share the message that would have been preached had I been home or at another church. And it's based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. A little bit more about that later. But you know, I don't know, maybe you've noticed that we've reached an age in which Americans are more outspoken than ever before. One only needs to listen to some of our current political candidates. And we have more outlets for speaking out than ever before. It used to be that you could express your opinion only to people in the room or the people within the sound of your voice. That was about it. So building an audience to hear you via mass media was both time-consuming and, in the past, quite costly. But today, it's no longer the case. Today, you can go on Facebook or, <clears throat> or Twitter or Instagram and, with relative ease, broadcast your message to everyone you know and perhaps everyone they know and potentially to everyone, period. And a good percentage of Americans are not at all shy about expressing their opinions, whether it's politics or culture wars or worship battles or what's right or what's wrong in this country or how everybody else should behave. And you can see just in an instant exactly what a large number of people think about any given subject. I won't go on and on about whether this is good or bad. It's just the way it is, and it's not likely to change soon. However, this easy access to an extended audience often magnifies a couple of problems. One problem is that there are those who think they have an opinion, that having an opinion is the same as being informed. And of course it's not. And oftentimes on social media you'll come across people sharing opinions that are not based on anything remotely close to research or reason or fact. It's just their opinion, and they want you to hear it. Now, I suppose it's fine if someone wants to share their opinion with the world. I do on occasion. I'll admit to that on Facebook. But we mustn't make the mistake that being opinionated is the same as being informed. There's a second problem we see magnified on social media. is the idea that expressing your opinion is the same as being involved. In other words, if I have an opinion about a certain issue and I post it on Facebook or Twitter, then I have somehow done my part and taken my stand and contributed to the cause. We make the mistake of thinking that voicing an opinion or stating a preference or affirming a certain belief or candidate is adequate substitute for hands-on involvement. Now, I'm picking on social media a little bit because it's such a major player in so many of our lives, but the fact is that this applies to every area of human interaction, including even those low-tech, old-fashioned, face-to-face conversations we actually do have with friends or neighbors or coworkers or family members. It applies to the way we do our jobs. Um, it also applies uh, to the way that uh, a church does ministry. Uh, having an opinion is not the same as being informed. And merely expressing an opinion or a belief is not the same as being involved. Now, frequently, when I share a message in church, I, I like to talk about the idea that God wants to, us to live a great life, that he's called us to live a great life, that he empowers us to live a great life. He wants us really to be difference makers, and he wants us to be people of action. That's why Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. This message repeats itself throughout the scriptures. Living a great life is more 
about what you do than what it is about what you say, because the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And as I kind of observe emerging social trends, and I will admit, as I examine my own life, <clears throat> I recognize a need for us all to talk a little less and do a little more. Now, what I'm going to talk about today is kind of part of a little longer series that <clears throat> I will hope to post in the weeks to come. And it's about turning down the volume on the way you live, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively, so that your life will be more pleasing to God, so that it will be more personal personally fulfilling for you, and so that ultimately you will have greater impact on the world around you. Now, way back when I first really understood what it meant to be a Christ follower, and even as I first began to work in the ministry, I was convinced that the key to being successful as well as the key to being holy was to be about as loud as possible. And there's a verse in Isaiah that says, I will not keep silent. And that could have probably been my motto at different times because I always had something to say about everything. And well, sometimes I just never hesitated to share it. Now, many people think that's what Christians are supposed to do. If we hear something we don't agree with or we see someone doing something we don't like, uh, we feel it's up to us to point it out. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, the answer is perhaps not, at least not always. I mean, speaking prophetically has its place in our culture, and it has a place in our personal relationships, and we'll talk about that some other time. But today I just want, to, want you to see that Paul introduces a somewhat counterintuitive approach to the Christian life that is not only more pleasing to God, it's also more effective in the long run. So I want you to listen to what he said, and this is writing to the Christians at Thessalonica. It's his first book, the fourth chapter, verses 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, here's what Paul is saying, I think. Before you try to make a big splash, before you try to go global with your great ideas, before you try to set the rest of the world straight, you need to first make sure that the life that you are living measures up to the standard of holiness that God has established for his people, and that, of course, includes you. The good news is that this is a standard that is well within your reach. Anyone can do it. And these few items that we're going to look at today, if you will make these your focus, then you will ultimately do more with your life than you imagined possible. So today we're just going to unpack this verse in First Thessalonians a little bit as we explore what Paul might have meant when he said that we should live a quiet life. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that Paul said, make it your ambition. I mean, that's 1 Thessalonians 4 again. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, let's just stop right here, and I want you to think about that word ambition. Now, the phrase in Greek can also be translated, make it your earnest endeavor, or make it your highest calling. Paul is saying, of all the things you set out to do with your life, this is priority one. Of all the things you want to do with your life, this goes above everything else. This means before you think about successful, before you think about being happy, before you even think about being popular or turning the world upside down with your brilliant ideas, make this your ambition. Now, let's just think for a moment what the word ambition implies. Uh, one, it implies that this is a lifelong pursuit. 
It's not a whim. It's not an afterthought. It's a, an intentional, focused objective. And so whatever you set out to do in life, this belongs at the top of the list. Also, the phrase, make it your ambition, implies that there's a strategy involved. If your ambition is to climb the corporate rat ladder, then you no doubt have a strategy for getting there, which would include showing up early, working hard, working late, meeting deadlines, exceeding projections, and on and on. That's a, that's a good strategy. If your ambition is to drop a few pounds, you no doubt have a strategy for getting there, which would involve what you eat, what you don't eat, how much you eat, how much you move on, and so on. And a good strategy is essential, of course, in reaching this goal. In the same way, we need to have a strategy in place if we're really serious about achieving the goal that God has set for us. You won't accidentally stumble backwards into a good life. It requires intention. <clears throat> it requires focus and strategy. For this reason, much of what I'm going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks is going to be directed towards the strategies that you need to kind of put in place in order to make our lives what God wants them to be. <clears throat> It just begins with the understanding that God wants you to take this seriously. Serious enough to call it your life's ambition. Now that brings us to the next section of this verse that I want you to see. It's the life God calls you to lead. Again, Paul said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, <clears throat> to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you. Now Paul makes reference to three essential areas. <clears throat> so we're going to just spend a a little bit of time looking at each one. The first one is to live a quiet life. Now, again, that, that Greek word translated quiet means literally peaceful or tranquil or calm. Some people might say it's kind of laid back. Well, Paul is not really talking so much about noise, though that may be part of it. What he's really talking about is the amount of, I don't know, what would you call it, turbulence in your life. He's saying make it your ambition to live a less turbulent lifestyle. Make it your ambition to live in peace and tranquility. The image here is like that of a smooth surface of still water. And I think about that as I look out at Table Rock Lake this evening. And he's saying, aim for this kind of tranquility, the smooth surface of a beautiful lake. Now, the reason why Paul said to make this your lifelong ambition is because creating a calm and quiet and peaceful life takes focused effort. It doesn't just happen with a snap of the finger. It takes lots and lots of practice. That's because our natural tendency is not toward peace and tranquility. Our natural tendency is toward chaos. I mean, admit it, we like to stir things up. We have a tendency to muddy the waters whenever we can, and all too often, out of just sheer habit or just maliciousness, we kind of unnecessarily disrupt the calm that could be ours. Now, how do we do it? Well, if we're completely honest... Many of us would have to admit that sometimes we just look for things to get upset about. And if we don't find something worth complaining about, we'll make something up. Now, we've probably all had the joy, if you want to call it that, of working for that uh, boss whose idea of leadership was to walk through the workplace looking for something, anything that would justify, you know, blowing off some steam. But when it's your boss, there's not much you can do about it. But for your own sake, I, I would say don't be that guy. Don't go through life looking for things to get riled about. I mean, don't go through life looking for opportunities to add tension to every situation. Instead, do what David said in Psalm 34. Seek peace and pursue it. Seeking peace is not only how we relate to others. It applies to how we relate to ourselves in each situation. I mean, there are going to be times when you find yourself in extremely stressful circumstances, 
And you need to stop and say, okay, it's time to get quiet. It's time to seek God's peace. It's time to sing, be still my soul. You know, when Paul talks about a quiet life, he's talking about a life that is characterized by something other than constant turmoil and tension. And he's talking about a life that's strong enough to overcome this stuff. So we need to get in the habit of saying, as we go about our business through the day, is this is there a less stressful way, a, a more tranquil way, a peaceful way to do what I'm about to do? How can I start my day in the most peaceful way possible? How can I lead this meeting or resolve this conflict or handle this situation in the most peaceful way possible? How can I make the time I spend with friends and family as peaceful as possible? And on and on and on. This is where the use of the word quiet gives us a big hint. Many times, simply turning down the volume of our activities, you know, speaking instead of shouting, for example, helps to create a more tranquil environment. So Paul begins by saying that our, our ambition should be to live a quiet, peaceful, tranquil life. Now, the next item we'll look at is, is a major step in that direction. Paul says, make it an ambition to lead a quiet life. <clears throat> You're not, some of you are not going to like this. And to mind your own business. You know, if we were to poll ten people on the street, <clears throat> asking them how to describe Christians, I doubt seriously that any of them would say, well, you can spot a Christian by the way they mind their own business. I mean, that's not exactly what we're known for. Now, the fact is that it is not just a Christian problem, that's an American problem. It's a cross-cultural dilemma, a cross-generational dilemma. It's a human dilemma that dates back to the beginning of civilization, the days of Adam and Eve. I mean, people are, by and large, disproportionately interested in what's going on in other people's lives. And you only have to check your Facebook feed to see what I mean. And yet Paul tells us here, as plain as he possibly can, make it your ambition to mind your own business. Minding your own business begins with the decision to stop minding the business of others. And that begins with the decision to refuse to participate in gossip either by listening to it or spreading it around. That means that if you're in a conversation and you're discussing something that doesn't involve you, if you're not part of the problem or part of the solution, and the person you're talking about is not part of the problem or part of the solution, then it's gossip. And you need to stay out of it. It's just that simple. And by the way, here's something I learned over the years of observing gossips that work in the church. I have never met a gossip whose life is worth looking up to. People who meddle in the business of other people do so because they typically can't manage their own lives very well. But here's the flip side of this. Every solid Christian leader I've ever known has one thing in common with the others. They really don't engage in gossip. Their lives are too meaningful, too purpose-filled to waste time meddling in the affairs of other people. When Paul says, mind your own business, he's saying, stay out of other people's business. He's also saying, make sure you take care of your own business. But we're going to take a look at the next item. It's about the kind of life that God wants you to pursue. And he says, make it your ambition to live a quiet and peaceful life in which you mind your own business. And then he said, to work with your hands. We've all heard that phrase that you give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. And, you know, it, it applies to more than just how you do your job. It, it applies to how you relate to other people in every situation of life. I read a story not long ago. Uh, young college student. This story really impressed me. Uh, he had stopped by the bank one afternoon on his way home from class so that he could withdraw enough 
<clears throat> cash to pay rent. He put the money in the envelope, put the envelope in his backpack, and rode his bike home. When he arrived at his apartment, the envelope was not in his backpack. He checked all of his pockets to see if the money had magically moved to a new direction, but it hadn't. He retraced the route several times, hoping to find the envelope on the side of the road, but it was nowhere to be found. He'd lost the money. He'd lost the month's rent. Now, I don't know about you. <laughs> I'd have panicked, and guess what? For him, panic did set in. So what did he do? He negotiated some overtime with his employer. He drastically cut back on a week's worth of groceries, and he canceled his social plans so that he could work the extra hours, and he squeezed another, enough cash to pay his rent just before the past due deadline. Now, when I read that story, I, part of me was saying, why didn't you ask your mom or dad for the money? I mean, they would have given it to you I mean, without you having to deal with all that stress. But in the story he said, well, I did it because my dad didn't lose the envelope. I did. And since I have a job and I was able to cover the loss with a little bit of extra effort, how could I possibly accept my dad to pay for my mistake? And I thought, wow, isn't that a great attitude? I mean, could you imagine how proud his dad was to hear that story? And can you imagine what your life would be like if you lived with that same level of determination to take responsibility for your own situation? When Paul says to work with your hands, he's saying that it's up to you to do your fair share in each and every situation, without expecting the rest of the world to pick up your slack. Now, as I wrap this up, let's look very quickly at the last section of this verse, because there's a, a kind of a, a so-that clause to consider. Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Did you get that? So that you may win the respect of outsiders. I want you to notice, first of all, that he said daily life. He's talking about consistent actions, not just your words, not just your arguments, not just what you claim to believe, not just what you do for an hour on Sunday, but your daily life. Because there's no greater evidence that someone's religion is real than to see it lived out day after day after day after day. I also want you to notice that he used the phrase that you will win the respect of outsiders. This phrase literally means to walk in a way that is pleasing in appearance. They could even refer to walking gracefully. He's saying that when your life reflects these three fundamental values that you seek to live peaceably, that you mind your own business, that you do your own work, then these things alone are enough to capture the attention of the outside world. And the ability to live in this manner is so unique, so out of ordinary, that people can't help but notice, and they can't help but be drawn to it. So Paul says, this is the kind of life that God wants us to live so that others will see a difference in you. And then he gives us a second so that to consider so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Have you ever noticed that being able to carry your own weight carries a great deal of weight in the New Testament? In fact, Paul used almost this exact phrase in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, when he said, for each one should carry his own load. Now, I've often talked about how we need to be there for one another, how we need to help each other out and to lift each other up, and that's absolutely true. But there's a simple law of physics at work here. You can't lift up others if you're always the one who's down and out and asking for help. Making a difference in this world begins with a commitment to carry your own load, to work with your own hands, 
stand on your own two feet. Now, this message is really about the kind of example we set with our lives. The fact is that our mission involves more than just being a good example. We're here to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We're here to take a stand for truth. We're here to engage, to some extent, in the cultural conversation. Now, our mission involves more than setting a good example, but it never involves less. I'm saying that living out your mission begins with living a life that is worthy of respect. Albert Schweitzer was a musician, a theologian, and a medical missionary who spent most of his life serving the poor in a remote area of West Africa. He accomplished many great things through his life, including winning the Nobel Peace Prize. When he was well into his 80s, he wrote these words in a letter to his friend, Norman Cousins, talking about how he approached his career in ministry. He said, quote, I decided that I would make my life my argument, end of quote. Now, there are things we could criticize about Schweitzer today if we wanted to. His theology might have been a little off the mark at times, and some of his ideas and some of his methods might have been a little outdated. But his work, which continues even today, speaks for itself. His life was his argument. This should be our goal as well. That's why our mission begins here, living with intention, a peaceful and quiet life in which we mind our own business, carry on weight, so that the rest of the world can see the glory of God at work within us. Friends, if you've listened to this point, let me say it one more time. Your life is your argument. Not just the words you say or the creed you recite. It's not just about having an opinion or expressing an opinion, no matter how right that opinion might be. It's about how you conduct yourself day after day. This is exhibit A of who you really are. This is what your Christianity is all about. Your life is your argument. May we all then make it our ambition to live a quiet life in Jesus.